Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. I'll start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land and paying our respects to the Noongawal people, past and present. Welcome to the second of our Across the Creek, Conversations Across the Creek. Uh, as always, I'm not going to indulge in long introductions either of the event or indeed of the individual speakers because I'm going to let them talk about their research and therefore their they have an opportunity to introduce themselves. Uh, we'll start, each speaker will have seven to 10 minutes as the usual thing, and I will hold up, except uh, Ivana is sitting on my signs. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> sitting on, oh, it's gone. Oh, here they are. <laughs> Before we start though, I have invited Anita Moser to talk to us because she is actually the vice president, I think, of a very interesting undergraduate society on campus about which I knew nothing when she introduced herself to me and I thought it would be worth her sharing that with, with us, particularly uh, in this particular venue. Anita, why don't you tell us about it, please? I'm Anita. I'm the vice president of the ANU Students Cross-Disciplinary Academy, uh, Academy, or the ANU XSA. Um, basically, we're a uh, student society that's kind of similar to in premise at least to this event. Um, our, our shtick, if you will, is basically that university is about more than just getting a slip of paper for a job. It's just, it's also about learning and it's about learning how your discipline fits into um, the world around you and also about learning um, things from other disciplines as well as your own. So for example, I myself study law um, and it's great, but it's a very, very, um, narrow view of the world sometimes, and it's good to broaden that. And that's what the XSA aims to do. So we have discussions every day at 12 till 2. Um, there's one being facilitated right now, and if you join the XSA discussion group on Facebook, you can always view them all. Um, we also have several clubs that we run, um, so things like the TED Talks Club, where we look at all sorts of interesting TED Talks and we watch them and discuss um, ideas that come from them. We have Q&A, um, which is a similar premise, except we generally um, argue more about political issues that um, are in the world today. Uh, we have, we basically want to, just want to educate people in interesting and fun new ways. We also have things like Destination Conversations, where we invite guests. We've invited, last year we had a, um, we had Brian Schmidt come and talk to us about how MOOCs work. Um, this year we've had people like um, Michael Mazengarb come to us and talk about um, how will climate change the world. And um, yeah, we have a, a bunch of very interesting conversations that basically just allow students to um, experience more outside and get more out of their degree. Um, 
<coughs> so we, yeah. And we've told them that they're very welcome, obviously, to join us. But be aware of the fact that they're there because I think it might be useful both for you but also for us to know that you're w the work that you're doing. Yes, if you like these events, um, yeah. like this, the society is um, a great. Yeah. yeah, it's exactly what That's we really do. Nice. So. Thanks, Anita. Thank you very no problem. much. Thank yeah. you. Sorry, elaborate switch. What? Am I talking some more? Is that a criticism, Adriana? <laughs> Only very briefly, but then I'll pass it on. Okay, as I said, I'm not going to introduce the individual speakers. There'll be seven to ten minutes each. Then I'm going to allow about four or five minutes for direct questions after each speaker. Uh, uh, I don't want it to go on too long for obvious reasons, but I do think that sometimes it's people have urgent questions when they listen to a particular talk and they might want it clarified. So we'll allow for about four or five minutes maximum after each speaker for any immediate questions or comments. And then we will revisit at the end of all the speakers, uh, we'll, we'll ask them to sit up here and we'll uh, then open it to, to the floor for questions. And so yeah, thanks for the invitation to participate here today. Um, I guess I'm going to start with the most mathematical and technical talk of the day, I suspect. Um, and I'm going to be telling you about my research into the mathematical quantification of shape and how to compute this information from data and what these quantities can tell us about um, the application we're interested in. So this research was initially inspired by my doctoral advisor at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And he was really interested in how to confine um, hot plasmas so that you could create controlled fusion. And the basic physics going on in that context is that the charged particles follow magnetic field lines. And if the magnetic field line, so understanding the shape of the magnetic field lines can tell you about how those particles are going to move. And if the magnetic field lines fill out a closed smooth surface, then your particles will be confined or trapped. But if those magnetic field lines um, have holes, if the, the way they fill out space, if that has holes in it or is very tangled, then um, your particles will escape and can accelerate to high speeds. All right. So this, this um, fundamental properties of the shape of those magnetic field lines can help you to understand what's going to happen to your plasma. And now the problem is that the mathematical models that describe the magnetic field lines are high dimensional. So they're at least um, living in a four dimensional space. And so it becomes almost impossible to visualize what's going on. So you can't just look at your data and say, oh, yep, there's a hole. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. All right. Um, so you need computational tools that can extract information from data and tell you these sorts of um, qualitative aspects of shape. So is, it, are the, is the data connected? Is it in pieces? Are there um, holes and so on? Okay. So my thesis question became essentially, how can we get a computer to play join the dots? All right. And so by our data then, we're imagining our data to start with is in the form of points. And we have some way to measure distances between these points. 
Right, so we're now in a very broad context. Right, this setup could apply in many different situations. Um, and we're particularly interested in the number and size of clusters that those points might be grouped into and whether the data is filling out an object that might contain holes. So we want to know how many holes they are, how big they are, what type of holes. Okay, so the mathematics that describes these aspects of shape is called topology. And topology um, goes back over 100 years, maybe about 120 years. And, but in the 90s, when I was starting out in my research, um, topology was not really defined in such a way that you could work easily with finite data or these point, finite point clouds. And it was not, there were not um, good algorithms for computing topological quantities from this data. So we had to go back and um, adapt mathematical theories to this context and to also invent efficient computer algorithms. And so, the, of course, I was not the only one thinking about these questions. There were a few other people as well, it turns out. And this field has grown in the past 20 years um, thanks to efforts from a number of groups. And it's now, I think, most commonly referred to as topological data analysis. Okay. So my pictures here are all going to be mostly two-dimensional, just so you can see what's going on. But you have to imagine that um, we're building, we can build these things in higher dimensional spaces where we can't see what's going on. So we imag imagine our points up here are like this little pattern of points. And when you look at that pattern of points, you probably immediately see at least two clusters, right? Because a cluster is going to be when points are closer to one another than they are <coughs> to the rest of the data. And one way to capture that kind of connectivity information is to connect those points up in some sort of graph structure and then analyze the lengths of edges in the graph. If we want to understand holes, then we actually have to imagine taking these little data points and blowing them up <coughs> by balls of a particular radius. And so now we're trying to understand structure in the data set at a particular length scale. And the key lesson learnt um, in topological data analysis is that there's almost never going to be a single length scale that best captures structure in the data. There's almost always going to be, you're going to need to look at many different length scales. And in fact, it's much more informative to look at many different length scales at once or in sequence, because that's how you can understand the true structure in the data. So for example, these, um, the dark dots are kind of roughly covering a donut shape. And as we swell balls up around those little dots, we obtain um, different graph structures over here. And if we, um, this mathematical theory of homology can tell us about the presence of holes and clusters and holes. And what, um, so homology had been around for about 100 years and the the new mathematical theory was called persistent homology. And what persistent <coughs> homology let us do was to be able to track holes and identify when they're, when they're created and when they get filled in and to say things like, this hole here is the same as that hole here 
and it's different to this hole here, which is the same as that one up there. So that's sort of thing. Okay. All right, so we're at the point in this field of topological data analysis where we've got a really we've got really good mathematical theories, we've got um, efficient algorithms. Am I finished already? No, no. Ten, oh, I've got ten. Sorry, 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 sorry. Okay, we've got good algorithms, we've got um, nice mathematical theories, and so we're at this point where in the last five years people are going around and looking at applications. So I like to think of it as we've got this nice new hammer and we're just going around hitting whatever problems we can with it and seeing what it tells us, okay? <laughs> so that's kind of the state we're at. All right. And so the particular application I've been focused on in more recently with my colleagues in the Research School of Physics is getting shape from three-dimensional X-ray CT images. So here our data is in a completely different format so before we were thinking about points, here we've got um, grayscale values on a regular rect rectilinear grid. And the shape that we want to get out of these images is actually defined by taking different thresholds on those grayscale values. So if I take a mid-threshold here, I'll identify half that image is being um, below the threshold, so that will give me the pore space, and the rest of the image will be above the threshold and define the grains. And so now instead of changing my measuring stick, I'm gonna change my threshold and see how the shape changes as I vary that threshold. So that required um, adapting the mathematical theories again to this different context and um, and really coming to grips with the discrete nature of these grids. So if you look very close up at um, a digital image, it's made up of lots of little pixels. And the key to being able to get accurate topological information out of these pictures was to really understand what's going on at the level of um, these little pixels and how they all fit together. So um, in terms of applications, we want to understand um, the shape of the porous, the shape of the pore space, for example, is going to um, hopefully let us predict um, how fluids flow through that pore space. So that's one of the main applications I'm looking at. And what else do I want to... And, 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 and also the way grains are arranged, the adjacencies between grains and so on, um, will hopefully, by understanding that better, we'll be able to understand how forces transmit through granular materials. So if you have a pile of sand and you stick something heavy on it, how do the forces transmit through that packing, granular packing? And, and then the fluid flow problem of if you're trying to understand how maybe pollutants are moving through an aquifer or how um, water will flow through a filtration system. Um, this will help characterise those sorts of properties. Okay, so in terms of reaching out to the other social sciences, um, I guess there have been, I, oh, I was going to say there have been already been applications in fields from neuros, neuroscience, um, molecular biology, screening lots of different drugs, that kind of thing. And there have already been some applications in text analysis. So 
Um, I thought that was one way to make connections here. Um, but basically, you just you could think of this topological data analysis as being as another step beyond clustering. So if you're used to looking at um, data sets and um, trying to understand clustering in some way, then this topological data analysis can start to tell you about um, cycles or voids or vacancies. And then, so you might just want to think about what that could possibly tell you in your application area. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Will. Thanks for the invitation. I'm Glenn Rowe, and I'm a lecturer in digital humanities. And as a representative of digital humanities, I'm perhaps meant to straddle the creek, if you will, uh, the danger of which is not falling in, which I struggle with <laughs> constantly. But uh, my disciplinary background is in literature, French literature in particular. Uh, but I've been progressively looking at how we can move forward questions in, in that sphere uh, using first large scale natural language databases and increasingly tools borrowed from uh, machine learning and data mining uh, techniques. So it's part of this sort of explosion of uh, big data as a catchword, so big data. In the, and I'm interested both in this notion of <coughs> the sort of promises and perils of big data. So what, what big, these big data approaches can, can teach us, uh, and we all know perhaps the sort of enthusiasm or the techno-utopianism that comes along bound up in these ideas of if we just have all of the data, all of our questions will be answered. Scientific inquiry will go away. We no longer need to hypothesize. It's the end of theory. It's the end of science. So I'm interested in that sort of suite of uh, uh, of ways, and then also in, in transplanting these methods into into the humanities realm, uh, does this make sense? Can we talk about big data in the humanities? Does it does it? So these are sort of overarching questions of my of my own research, uh, and and of uh, digital humanities in general. So you know, at, at a certain point in the 90s, human, humanists discovered they had data, and then immediately, because it's the humanities, it becomes a crisis. Uh, <laughs> we have too much data. <laughs> Uh, and this is a crisis as old as time, right? This goes back to the ancients. We've always had too much information. We've always had too much knowledge. Uh, and so there's an increasing need to think about how we can negotiate between uh, uh, methods that are developed in the computer and informational sciences towards these gr to, uh, to these growing data sets in the humanities. So these are just some big overarching questions that we'll leave uh, open. Uh, but in particular, my recent work has been thinking uh, in these realms as a humanist. I and conditioned to think historically. So how uh, these moments of information overload, if you think about it, we're living one now, there were moments, similar moments in the past. So the 18th century is one of these, and the 18th century is a, a period in which I work. Yeah, and, and Denis Diderot in his Encyclopédie uh, is thinking exactly along these lines. And he says, as centuries pass, the mass of works grows endlessly. One can foresee a time when it will almost be as difficult to educate oneself in the library as in the universe. If we think of the image of literature in times before the invention of printing, we see a small number of men of genius busy creating and countless throng of workers busy transcribing. Now, if we anticipate centuries to come, so he's moving forward, it's, it's looking backwards and moving forward, uh, and think of the image of literature once printing, which never rests, has filled huge buildings with books. We'd say huge databases now with books. Uh, we'll find it once more split into two classes of people. There will be those who read little and immerse themselves in new research or what they take to be new. He's clearly thinking about the sciences here. <laughs> and the others 
we poor workmen, incapable of producing anything, will be busy leafing through those books night and day and separating out what they deem worthy of being anthologized and preserved. Uh, so I'd like to think in our present moment these are no longer people, but perhaps algorithms that are doing this anthologizing and preserving. Uh, and this is this notion. So this Diderot is looking both backwards and forward, forward to this time when there will be so many books we can't make sense of them, and then backwards to the, the how we previously dealt with this sort of information. And thinking about anthologies and things like this, this, this is an early modern information technology, right? The anthology one, the encyclopedie, was one in and of itself, a way of organizing information. And this comes out of work from Anne Blair and Tony Grafton at Princeton and Richard Yao here at, at Griffith University. Uh, there were certain technologies in the past that were meant to deal with this sense of information overload. They could, have, they could easily be uh, <coughs> physical technologies. Here's the, the, the book, the book wheel. Uh, which was quite popular for a time. Uh, so it allowed you to read many books at different times. Uh, <laughs> but this, uh, but th this uh, falls into a larger category of, of what I, I'm sort of interested in now, which is commonplacing. So there's this notion uh, of the commonplace book, which was an early modern information technology. And it was, I would say, a database technology. So it was a, a way, this is Locke's, a method of, <coughs> John Locke's method of commonplacing, which was published first in French in, in 1686. Uh, and so it was a way of, while reading, extracting information, storing it, so you would put it somewhere, and then you need to get it back out, right? So it's a total database technology. So you'd put it under headings, or you'd alphabetize them, or however you would do this. Uh, but it wasn't meant to stop there, right? So it was, an, it was also a technology of writing. It wasn't just a technology of reading. Uh, and so you would, <coughs> You would collect these passages, so then you could use them later. Uh, it wasn't just as for preservation's sake. Uh, so this is Locke's method in published then in English. Uh, <coughs> and so the idea we had was sort of, well, how can we find, it will be difficult computationally to find the, the traces of reading, right? When somebody reads something and decides to extract it, that's pretty much a private sphere sort of notion. But when they deploy these commonplaces again, we should be able to find these common passages. Uh, in the right data set. And so we thought about this notion, we had an idea that the 18th century is sort of this last gasp of commonplacing, um, you know, which was really a sort of renaissance thing. It comes out of Erasmus and the notion of copia or abundance. Uh, and so we decided, well, if we could find a collection of data that represents close uh, to what we consider a literary system or a cultural system, and there are not many of these, but 18th century collections online is pretty good. There's no perfect data uh, in the humanities, especially. Uh, but that it sort of approaches a, a, a comprehensive example of everything published in England from the 18th century. So it's fairly large. I'd consider big data. An astrophysicist would laugh and say it's small. But it's 205 individual works, 35 million pages of text uh, <coughs> split up into these categories. And so working on this uh, data set, we wanted to say, well, how can we approach this? How can we find, uh, how can we leverage methods developed in uh, in the information sciences, in this case bioinformatics, to look to think about using sequence alignment algorithms, which work on the human genome, to find similar passages uh, in this huge data set. And we've done this before. We developed our own system. I was at the University of Chicago. Uh, that done this does this pretty well. So we looked at, let's say, citation practices in the encyclopedie. So what books were cited, what, which books weren't cited. Uh, and it turns out there's a reason, right? So you could cite John Locke's On the Education of Children. It's an uncontroversial work, so it was cited everywhere. Uh, but you couldn't cite his second treatise on government because it was banned in France at the time. 
Uh, and so they use the text, but there's no citation record. There's no formal record. So we use these algorithms to do that. And this is still pretty, these are pretty, this is the encyclopedia compared to 10,000 works. Uh, and so it works pretty well. But when we got to uh, Echo, uh, it sort of exploded exponentially <laughs> as big data do. So I use this talk to say, be careful what you wish for. You want big data. <laughs> you get big data, you end up with more data. Uh, than you can do with. So if we wanted to just attack this with its 205,000 books compared to each other, that's 42 billion possible connections, it's not impossible, it takes a long time. So the first thing we spent doing was sort of trying to cull our collection and to get rid of duplicates. Uh, and then there was the question of the text itself, which is quite dirty. Um, dirty OCR is this technical matter. So this is both of the lower, these are, these are exact passages, but you can see all the differences that come in. Uh, so computationally, it's it's fairly, uh, it's fairly problematic uh, to say that these two texts are the same chunk of the Lord's uh, Prayer. But nonetheless, we've continued on, and, and it turns out that the Bible is a problem um, for a variety of reasons, in this case, because there's so much of it. Uh, so again, if you, if you look at a curated collection, uh, there's a curated version of Echo. There's almost no Bible in it, because academics have curated this collection. If you look at what's actually published in the 18th century, 50% are Bible passages of the 250% of the text inside the 205,000 volumes come from the Bible in one way or another. So this was one sort of thing. And this isn't really a problem of computation. You can get these matches faster. We ended up with 17 million passages here. Uh, and this, so you could get at them faster with high performance computing, but you'd still end up with the 17 million at the end, at the end of the day. So winding down, we did end up with 35 million uh, passages, which we're still trying to get through. Uh, but you can nonetheless sort of winnow in on these things. So this was a, this is a passage. You can trace the life of these passages, if you will. This is James Thompson's poem, Spring, which sort of goes viral in the 18th century. <coughs> and we can begin to think about topologies of when something becomes a commonplace. So it's used, it's re-edited, then it becomes collected in a single author work, then it's criticized in a critical, uh, it shows up in anthologies. So our working hypothesis is that these passages in the aggregate sort of behave uh, along this uh, spectrum, and, around, and from four to six, they become commonplaces, if you will. Uh, and you can see this just by looking at the, the, art, the titles of the articles in which they occur. So by, in 10 years, this passage has become already a commonplace. It's already anthologized in 1738. We can see it here. And then the tendency of these passages is to get smaller as they get more common. Uh, and so by 1764, it shows up in a novel, uh, and it's the sort of uh, the small snippet that we're used to thinking about uh, these commonplaces. So this is just a way of, of going through the data based on these shared passages that we've identified and put together. Uh, but what it did is it sort of completely changed our notion of commonplace in the 18th century, which we felt was a private sphere activity if it still existed at all. And what we found was that it was incredibly public sphere still at the same time. There was a whole swath of printed commonplace books that functioned essentially as, uh, as encyclopedias or as a way of collecting this information. Uh, and this same sort of tradition persists, right? So if you go online now, there's all these quotation farms that function exactly on these same way. So it's a way of thinking about the early modern notion of information overload and how we deal with it today. So thank you very much. <laughs> Oh, my name is Anna Wierzbicka, and I'm a professor emerita now in the School of Languages, Literatures, sorry, Cultures and Literatures. What's her name? 
I'm sorry about this. Okay, I have 10 minutes at my disposal, and I will, so I want to use five minutes for the background and five minutes for my own work. So the question which is at the center of all my current work is this. Can people say the same thing in all different languages? <clears throat> exactly the same thing. I think this is a question which should concern scholars on both sides of the creek. <clears throat> because it concerns science, it concerns education, it concerns international relations, anything. Well, not anything, but lots of other things. Uh, for example, can the same uh, things be taught in schools around the world? About the stars, about the animals, about the environment, and about how it is good for people to live. So it's your astronomy, your biology, your ethics, and so on. The fact is that a lot of human knowledge is locked into particular languages. And also a lot of human thinking about the world is locked into particular languages. And in the 21st century, a lot of human knowledge and human thinking about the world is locked into academic English. Oh, as discussed in my uh, book, Imprisoned in English. And so let me just mention here two areas and on, on, I have, on which I have uh, published quite a bit. One is mm, human vision. Uh, there is a lot of knowledge about human vision, which is locked into the vocabulary uh, of English with its particular terms for color terms. Similarly, there is a lot of knowledge mm, about human emotions, which is locked into uh, the English emotion lexicon. So such knowledge is not cross-translatable into non-European languages, and not even into German, French, or Russian, for example, because both the color lexicon and the emotion lexicon of these languages are different from English. For example, the English blue doesn't mean the same as the Russian galuboy, and the English anger doesn't mean the same as the German wut, and so on. So this is bad enough. But there are areas where the lack of cross-translatability is even more damaging than, for example, in the science of human vision or human emotions. Because there are times when it is really important for human beings from different societies to be able to say the same things in different languages. Uh, these are areas where human uh, groups need consensus. And there cannot be a genuine consensus without a genuine mutual understanding. In my opinion, nothing illustrates this better than the search for uh, a charter of global ethics. So for some 20 or 25 years, uh, a number of thinkers around the world have urged for um, the representatives of diverse human groups around the world to try to articulate some minimal ethical consensus. And for example, the Earth Charter, published by the UNESCO in the year 2000, and formally endorsed by thousands of organizations around the world, says this, I quote, we stand in a critical moment of Earth's history, a time when humanity must choose its future. And the introduction to this document states that in order to be credible, an Earth Charter must have an ethical dimension. So it says, I quote, there can be no better global order without a global ethics. And the Dalai Lama, who apparently inspired some of these documents, perhaps many of these documents, points out uh, that, I quote, in the past, the respect that people had for religion meant uh, that ethical practices 
uh, that ethical practice was maintained through a majority following one religion or another. But this is no longer the case. Uh, the Dalai Lama is, I think, an exceptional world leader who is fully aware of the importance of cross-translatability in global ethical discourse. But despite his appreciation of this point, and despite some lip service from various international bodies, most of the proposals for global ethics which have been put forward over the last 25 years or so are locked into academic English. So they routinely rely on words like tolerance, fairness, dignity, violence, exploitation, disc discrimination, domination, degradation, inhumanity, and so on and so on, which are simply not translatable into most of the world's languages. And so for example, in a publication entitled Towards a Universal Declaration of a Global Ethics, uh, we read this declaration should use language acceptable to all major religions and ethical groups. Hence, the language ought to be humanity-based. And therefore, it should be anthropocentric. Well, this is great, but just keep reading. And then in the same declaration, we read, for example, the following what they call presupposition. Every human, every human possesses inalienable and inviolable dignity. Well, this statement is not anthropocentric. It is anglocentric, because the word dignity is an English word which doesn't have equivalence in most languages of the world. Uh, so, it's not, these, uh, so it's not translatable. It's not cross-translatable. And of course, words like inalienable and inviolable are not cross-translatable either. So this essential presupposition is locked into conceptual English. It is not genuinely anthropocentric. It is not humanity-based. So now to my own work. So I too have been trying to develop a charter of global ethics but one which, in contrast to all the others, is not locked into conceptual English, but is genuinely cross-translatable into other languages. And the reason why I see this as a feasible undertaking is that for many years, my colleagues and I have tried to identify a limited set of words which are universally or nearly universally, universally cross-translatable. And we have identified around 100 such words. And we have also identified a number of what we call canonical combinations in which these words can be used in a wide range of languages. On this basis, we have created a mini language, which we call, generally speaking, minimal language. And this minimal language has as many versions as there are languages. But in many situations, such as today, here today, it is practical to use the English version of this minimal language, which we call minimal English. So we can use minimal English to talk about anything, astronomy, environment, religion, biology, history, and so on. Uh, anywhere, and uh, when it is really important to be able to say exactly the same thing in different languages. And I will illustrate this with a few examples from my proposed charter of global ethics. You have these examples on the handout. So, uh, one, killing people. It is very bad if people want to kill other people. Two, women. It is very bad if men want to do very bad things to women. Three, saying what is not true. It is very bad if people want to say many things to other people if they know that, that these things are not true. Four, people below. 
It is very bad if people think like this about some other people. People of this kind are not like other people. They are below other people. Five, wanting to do something very bad to someone. It is good if people don't want to think like this about other people. This someone did something very bad to me. Because of this, I want to do something very bad to this someone. Six, something good in all people. It is good if people think like this about all other people. I know that there is something very good in this someone, because I know that there is something very good in all people. Seven, children. It is good if people think like this about children. Something very bad can happen to children if other people don't do many good things for them. Because of this, it is good if other people want to do many good things for children. And eight, living creatures. It is good if people think like this about living creatures of many kinds. These creatures can feel something very bad, like people can feel something very bad. Because of this, I don't want to do very bad things to these creatures. So now a conclusion, about one minute. Uh, to conclude, the globalized world needs a global code of ethics. But to be globally shared and globally accessible, this global code of ethics uh, needs to be formulated in words and phrases that are cross-translatable. Not everyone will agree, perhaps, with the charter that I'm proposing. But at least this charter offers a platform for global discussion without excluding anyone and without privileging Anglo-English. So more generally, my current work focuses on, th on three main tasks. First, perfecting minimal English in collaboration with my colleagues. Two, using minimal English as a tool for rethinking a number of areas including, uh, apart from global ethics, the history of astronomy, the theory of evolution, and the basics of Christian faith. And three, developing minimal Polish and rethinking some areas in both minimal English and minimal Polish. Thank you. Just in the minimal part. <laughs> well done. Why do I focus on what people want to do rather than on what people actually do? And that's something very important. It comes up in those discussions on the global, uh, about global ethics, for example, from the Dalai Lama, who says, look, there are lots of conventions about the rights and about uh, what people do. But we also need an ethical dimension, which has to do with the inner transformation. That's what the, 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 many of the people in this field, especially uh, including Dalai Lama, say. So it's not enough to have rules and laws about what people do and what should happen to them if they do this or that. We also need to think on ethical standards, ethical ideals. So it is bad if people want to think like this. If it's bad, it's, a, it's about the heart. That's the ethical dimension. That's how, uh, well, they, they, many people in this field, especially in the Lama, see it, and that's how I see it. OK, everything else about doing is also terribly important, but we know that. Could but that's the new. about intentionality and not action? No, no, no. We only need 100 words. Intentionality is not one of them. <laughs> no, you can only use words. You can only use words like want and think and do and say no intentionality. Really, yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, I'm doing it old school, even though I'm the technologist in the room. I thought I'd, <laughs> yeah, I, I thought I'd try um, this, you know, this exercise of you know the two cultures thing. And um, I'm actually with Vladimir Nabokov on this, who reckons that it's actually a ditch rather than a creek. That you know, I think his <laughs> words were I, uh, uh, a, dim a dimple of a ditch that a small frog could straddle. 
Um, so he's obviously thinking of Sullivan's <laughs> Creek, even when it rains. <laughs> so my scientific work is in machine learning, um, which is how you can make machines learn from observations. So an example is you know, how a modern telephone can learn to recognise your voice. Right? So if I, I can't say it because it'll recognise it, but there's a magic phrase I can say that the phone will, will know what I've said. And I'm going to focus on a couple of core questions that I've looked at. So one of the questions is, um, given a certain amount of data, how accurate can your predictions be? Or turning that round the other way, how much data do you need to get a certain accuracy of forecast? Right? So it's about making predictions. So interestingly, and again getting into the spirit of this um, centre, um, this problem was perhaps first posed by Marcel Proust. I'm not making this up. Um, in his book, In Search of Lost Time. So in volume two, within a budding grove, the narrator is reminiscing, as he tends to, at length, as he certainly does, um, <laughs> on how he can discern the pattern of movements of a little band of girls in the seaside of resort at Balbec. So he's fallen in love with this group of girls collectively. He hasn't figured out which one, right? But he, he wants to be with them. So he wonders how many observations he has to make of their movements in order to figure out where they're going to be. So the way he puts it is how many observations, patient but not at all serene, must one accumulate of the movements to all appearance irregular of those unknown worlds before being able to be sure that one has not allowed oneself to be led astray by mere coincidence, that one's forecast will not be proved wrong before deducing the incontrovertible laws acquired at the cost of so much painful experience of that passionate astronomy. So we leave the passion out of it in, 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 in what I do, but this is a core question in machine learning. Um, and the interesting thing is that the, there's many answers to the question, but the core answer to the question doesn't depend so much upon the girls, but depends upon the narrator, because he's forming a model in his head. So this is a core idea in machine learning, in all engineering and science, that you build a model. And so then the, the um, uh, the technical work that some of the technical work that I've done has been about what are the properties of that model, right? So you, you know, if you imagine the putting lines on a page and you draw a straight line, right? That's a simple model. If I have a wobbly line, it's a more complicated model. And so, trying to understand mathematically um, the complexity of these models is what I've been looking at. Now, this this is an abstraction, and I'm not going to give you the technical mathematical interpretation of this, but if you can just think that you have a set of possible ideas that you will fit to the data, and it's how rich that set is. So it's how you mathematically measure that is the important point. So that's one technical thing that I've worked on. But if you step back a bit further, I mean, as Glenn alluded and you all know, um, this idea of data analytics is a big deal nowadays. There's a lot of work going on in it. Roughly speaking, there's 100,000 technical papers that have been written about it. So if you purport to work in a field, you like to think, well, how can you understand the field as a whole? Right? And so it's not a ridiculous question to ask. Um, might be hard to answer. Now, typically, um, technologies are techniques. Right? You've got a particular hammer that you mentioned before. Right? There's lots and lots of hammers. And my first attempt at um, understanding how understanding the field as a whole, the first thing you think of is, fine, you've got to go and make a catalogue of the hammers. Right? It's a very natural thing to go and do. So I've tried that and failed. 
right? That didn't work. And um, there's all sorts of reasons why that doesn't work, but there's, the good news is that there's an alternate way um, of looking at, the, looking at the question. So my question is, how can you make a map of all of this? So it's, you know, Diderot's encyclopedia, again, um, which is an astonishing coincidence. My father-in-law managed to acquire three, three volumes of the illustrations of that, that a colleague of his had rescued 50 years ago, looking over the fence of a manor, where the lord of the manor was clearing out all of these books and they're making a big bonfire of them. <laughs> it makes you cry, doesn't it? He rescued three of them, with the human anatomy pages ripped out. <laughs> I kid you not. Um, so that's what I want to do, right? To build, a, to build a map of all of the problems. And so again, doing the abstract mathematical thing, you think of a problem now as a point, right? It's in a point in an abstract space. So I want to, sequence alignment is a thing, or predicting, you know, whether it's going to rain later on today. These are all problems. And so what I've been working on is how you understand all of those problems as a whole. And there's a mathematical theory that underpins it. And, um, you know, a lot of the ideas that we understand intuitively, like geometry, can underpin this. And so one way of describing what I've been doing is the geometry of machine learning problems. So I'm also interested in how machine learning can be applied to all manner of different things. And so Glenn gave some great examples there of things that you might not have thought it could be applied to... Um, you know, at first sight, you know, it starts off in a very technical domain, but it, it, it broadens out. And um, the area that I'm particularly intrigued by is for the analysis of causation. So we all know that, you know, correlation and causation, and they're not, they're not quite the same thing. And the, the crucial point, which um, is now, this is really quite topical in the field of machine learning. I can again, um, delightfully, find a apposite quote from the classics from Alexander's, Alexander Pope's moral essay. So here is the key point. In vain, the sage with retrospective eye would from the apparent what conclude the why, infer the motive from the deed and show that what we chanced was what we meant to do. So what he's saying in language different to what I would use is that you can't just measure the data and figure something out. What you have to do is to give the system a kick, right? You have to do an intervention. So understanding how you can make those interventions work is something that I want to, um, I want to study. I want to finish with three key points in the spirit of um, discussion. So rather than representing the science side of the university, I'm actually a technologist. And I, you could argue that technology is the thing that lives in the middle, although my dean would probably argue she doesn't want to live in a ditch. Um, but one of the crucial points, the difference between technology and science, in a nutshell, is that it is synthetic. You create rather than just analyse. Now, on the humanities side, you've got the arts where you go and create. And so I think there's an interesting connection there. Now, within engineering, when you create, it's not, the model is not that there's some inspirational platonic form in the designer's head and that it comes out as some divine inspiration. Instead, and this was articulated in a book by Christopher Alexander um, about 50 years ago, the, the, um, the way you should think about it is that there are a whole bunch of constraints. They're tacit, they're implicit. You might not be able to articulate them. And the problem of design is finding a solution to the constraints. It's to get it to work, right? It's like 
Um, what is a successful aeroplane? It's one that doesn't crash, right? Most of the constraints you express as things that you don't want to have go wrong. Now, at first it seems silly, but actually it's an incredibly powerful point. So it's like with science, right? You could argue that science doesn't try to get to the truth. It tries to simply stop making the errors that you can articulate, right? That's the point. So you, you know that you're going to make mistakes. So what you're trying to do is to avoid making the mistakes. Um, second, um, the second uh, observation that I would make is that um, in the technology and scientific sphere, pretty well every creative work is co-authored, right? And that's an interesting difference to the other side of campus. Um, now, there are creative works um, in the humanities side that are co-authored, like think of a modern motion picture, right? But novels are not. I mean, it's odd. I mean, I think in my entire collection of books, I have one co-authored novel by an um, Italian couple, Renata Minaldi and Francesco Sorti. It must be a rare sort of thing. I'm puzzled why. Right? This seems to be just a convention. Scientists love working collaboratively because of the previous point. Your co-worker can spot the mistakes that you've made. Right? I imagine the same is true. Um, so finally, um, to wrap up, um, in the last couple of years, I've been involved in a large interdisciplinary project involving all four learned academies. Um, it was under the umbrella of Securing Australia's Future, and we did a project on technology and Australia's future. And um, so we wrote a big report on this. And one of the chapters of the report is all about the subjective view of technology. And I found this very interesting. And it was like the, the biggest mental shift. It was the point about the, a key factor on, how on whether or not people will adopt the new technologies, how they feel about it. And how you, you know, the language that you can use, the techniques you can elicit that, and the implications of that. Now, in looking at this, I observed um, something that I thought would be worth flagging here. So overseas at top universities, Stanford, Cornell, MIT, there are programs, they're typically called STS, Science, Technology and Society. There will be courses on the history of engineering. The ANU has a fine history school. We have an engineering school. We do not have anything in the middle, right? So I know there are plans for the redevelopment of this thing here at Sullivan's Creek, so perhaps, <laughs> right, there's a solution there. So I'm done. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.